Hello, and welcome to the Platform Podcast, hosted by Market Place Risk Advisory Board Chair L. Tucker, a former journalist who writes, speaks, and consults on all things startups. The Platform Podcast features conversations with founders, operators, and experts tackling a myriad of topics facing the marketplace and sharing economy startup ecosystem. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not professional advice. For specific issues, please seek an appropriate professional or contact us at info at marketplacerisk.com for more information. And now, without further ado, I will hand things over to Elle. Hello, and welcome back to the Platform Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brian Davis. He is Head of Trust and Safety at Dodgeball, and he's also a new member of the Marketplace Risk Advisory Board. Welcome to the, the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to it. Always love talking about fraud of whoever will really listen to me. Okay, well, before we talk about fraud, I'm going to ask you about tortilla chips because I've just looked at your LinkedIn profile <laughs> and that is part of your um, profile. And I just want to know when you say addict, how are we talking every day here with tortilla chips? Um, a fresh bag stays closed. I can have a little bit of self-control once it's open in front of me. Um I have to have my wife pry it away from me, really. Uh, it's just the one type of food that I have no self-control over, and I just can't hide who I am, even on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Um, Brian, tell me, what is Dodgeball, and how did you get into all this? Uh, Dodgeball is a fraud stack as a service, and I'll get into Dodgeball a little bit more so in a second, but it kind of ties into my own personal journey of how I ended up there. Um, so I'm head of trust and safety there. I really work on helping build out the product. Uh, so fraud fighters would actually have a tool to make their lives easier. And I really help on helping internally understand how to talk to fraud fighters, where they hang out, what type of content would really kind of connect and resonate with them, really making sure that as dodgeball, we stay relevant to who we're looking to help. But my story really isn't unique for the fraud and trust and safety community. Um, I see, and I think we'll really start out with like, what is trust and safety? There's, to me, a whole identity crisis around it. For me, it's really trust and safety is building the relationship with your customer, your end user, through their entire customer journey. A different company or business model might look at it in different ways. You have content moderation, payment risk, chargebacks, logins, account openings, traffic coming in, updating of settings, uh, communication on platforms. So there's a lot of different checkpoints throughout the customer journey. And at each one of those, you want your good users to feel trusted and safe on your platform. And then you want to keep out the abusers and fraudsters um, from really taking away from the reputation that your marketplace holds. Mm -hmm. So I ended up in the fraud world, um, getting an accounting degree. I ended up being really good at it, but honestly hated everything about it. Oh, uh, no. Sorry to any accountants that are listening. This is just my story. Uh, so on paper, I looked really good uh, for that world. And I said, you know what? All right, I'll give it, give myself a chance one year, one year exactly. And I stayed tr true to it. Not a day more not a day less, exactly one year. And I was out. I convinced a 
marketplace, physical goods within the e-commerce uh, space. So buying and selling modern technology, think iPhones, Samsungs, MacBooks, everything sort of like that, um, to be the first fraud fighter in. So I've done this a couple steps along the way from, I like looking at fraud and abuse from a couple different angles. So I've done FinTech, uh, digital subscription, marketplaces, independent consulting, and now uh, I'm on the provider side, Dodgeball. Mm-hmm. Um, through a lot of these journeys, there's just been these issues. So uh, as I'm hired, I'm not a magic pill by any means, and I'm non-technical. So I, can, I know what tools, what types of abuse, uh, I can come on board and really help understand what are the risks associated with the company and the business. But I can't integrate, implement, build out anything of the sort uh, for myself. I can be the architect, lay out the blueprint and the design. Uh, but then it just kind of comes, oh, here comes Brian. Uh, he just joined us. And now he's going to try to say why we need this tool or data for him to do his job. And we've had this roadmap built out. So um, it's really about building partnerships internally, uh, but p- carefully being not the bad guy mm-hmm. to engineering and product, um, yeah. really having that support. Yeah, you don't want to be unpopular because, you know, you, you, you'd you had that already being, you know, an accountant. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Uh, and you kind of misalign sometimes with your goals of fraud and trust and safety you want to protect. So you're seeing, even though you're generating revenue and have a huge influence of revenue creation throughout the entire, entire customer journey, most people see you as a cost center. You're saving money, you're saving costs, kind of the opposite of marketing. So when marketing goals are out, you are on the other end of, you might be protecting the user, but you're cutting into marketing's goals. So now you have to, all these internal partners who see you almost as a threat of accomplishing their own work, disrupting their own work. So then I'm stuck with whatever I have as leftovers, of uh, being able to try to do my job the best I can. Um, and maybe I might have 13 tabs open. Of I have my CS system. I have our operations tool. If I'm lucky, I have a fraud prevention tool, uh, even though fraud is specific through each one of those checkpoints we talked about. And I'm just piecing together all this, whatever I can really grab. I By the time I have 13 tabs open, it's a headache. I'm the king of exiting out of tabs by accidentally. And then do I have all the information to make the right decision now at this point? I don't know. Um, so that's ultimately where Dodgeball comes in, building a fraud stack as a service. It's one integration to protect your entire product every corner of your product. Uh, And marketplaces are complex. So you have your traffic, your onboarding. If you have dual-sided marketplaces, you probably have an onboarding experience for one type of maybe your buyers. And then you have the seller side. They probably go through a different type of IDV, identity verification, um, an onboarding process to really ensure that they are. And then you have payments, content moderation. So for me, in my career, I've always had to pick and choose what is the biggest risk instead of actually having the ability to protect the entire business all at once. So Dodgeball helps build out those integrations, one integration that you know how to fight for ongoing engineering resources because fraud and trust and safety never wins that battle. Uh, just makes it easier. And then non-technical people like me can integrate and automate the imperfect customer experience and then learn and adapt because fraudsters will 
just find a way around and abuse it. And you got to be responsive in that and building out your fraud strategy. Really, you have to be tactical and strategic all at the same time. You must make life pretty difficult for the fraudsters because, you know, you, you're just constantly evolving and changing your tactics all the time. Yeah, I suppose you have to be, don't you? You have to, but they work sometimes better together. They're fraud communities and they are very collaborative. They're turned into a business. They have their own tools. So as much as I like to think I create headaches for them, they are just as adaptive, if not more adaptive. It's weird, isn't it? You sort of would like, you know, the fraud fighting community and obviously through Marketplace Risk, you know, we're connected with many of you and we know all about it. But it's funny to think that on the other side, there's this sort of hidden, you know, it's a bit like sort of stranger things, isn't it? It's like the upside down. It's like there's, you know, a whole world of people who are actually the, the fraudsters working together as a community. It's It's kind of mind blowing. Exactly. They now even get benefits, PTO. Uh, some of them probably make better money than the fraud fighters themselves and probably even marketplace owners. Wow. Well, this is not an advert for it. So let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. Um, now, I know we have talked about you know fraud strategies and um, I know that you particularly had put together a, a sort of, you know, a kind of checklist of 10 things that that could destroy a good fraud strategy. And I thought that it would be really useful for our listeners if we could talk through those 10 things, time allowing, that is, because I know that you've already given me loads of interesting stuff um, and I hope we have got time. But without putting you on the spot, what are 10 things that destroy a good fraud strategy? And um, yeah, take notes, people. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can kind of run right through them and then backtrack into a couple of them specifically that mm -hmm. kind of catch your yeah. eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, kind of grouping them. Um, I mean, if you see me on LinkedIn, I write them a little bit more aesthetically pleasing. I like to play around with words, but it really starts with data. If you don't have data, you can't really make accurate decisions. So lack of data is a big one. And then failure to adapt. Once you have data, it makes it, you got to do something with it. And I, I think we all know about analysis paralysis. So the ability to actually adapt to what you're learning, learn and improve. Uh, no response plan. I think it's not just fraud and trust and safety. Every kind of department runs into this, but um, just putting out fires and having no true organization of, how to actually respond to new incidents and new attacks. Without that organization, it really makes it challenging to prioritize what work should actually be done. Um, moving on to lack of resources. So this can go into tooling data, actually bodies who are actually doing the work. So any type of resources, I, I know where all teams also are kind of like resource constraint and you're, you're balancing, you're doing the best you can. Lean team, I think a lot of people use that phrase. To me, it just says we're under-supported, we're understaffed. <laughs> just do the best we can. Lean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a, it's a kind of, um, yeah, it's uh, not It's not often what, what it actually means, is it? <laughs> no, but we all try our best, and that's really sometimes what we can do. Uh, and then really with all that, especially for a lean team, our time 
uh, needs to be protected. So too many meetings, having control over your calendar and protecting the time you actually spend thinking and talking about things really cuts into the time that you can actually action and do things. So really doing a meeting audit and taking control of your calendar. I mean, that helps everyone both on a personal and professional level of really making sure you're able to put your energy and time into the right things. But too many meetings is uh, a real big challenge in itself. Interesting. And then lack of consistency. Really, uh, I talk about a a swing of a pendulum. Uh, I use it in the terms of risk tolerance. So you could start out as very risk adverse uh, and then uh, swinging the pendulum all the way to the other side. So that really impacts how, what you really can choose to do to mitigate the risk. Uh, It's not always about eliminating the risk. It's about managing the risk specifically. So those big changes in the pendulum really has impact of how things are thought about and how controls are actually put into place. Uh, Moving past that one is, um, well, I kind of combined two right there of swinging the pendulum, which rolls into the lack of consistency. Those two, to me, kind of go together. Um, So that was a two for right there. And then moving on to leadership support. Mm -hmm. Um, It is crucial from a business goal perspective an understanding of leadership to actually have support from them. Uh, Less of, hey, we hired you and you're just going to do everything. They need to have visibility, observability, at the very least of having an understanding why fraud and trust and safety teams were actually created to begin with. And then that starts as really the foundation of being able to educate them. The more leadership knows, I always say tone at the top, but there it is. It rings true and is a consistent uh, phrase for a reason. They set the tone. They set the culture. If they understand the risks about new product launches, new features, new markets, it helps build trust by design into features and those launches so teams can be better aligned and collaborating a little bit more efficiently around that. Um, and then... Poor stakeholder collaboration. That goes into the culture set in by the tone of the leadership. If leadership doesn't care, if leadership rather focus elsewhere, they rather put their goals, attention, energy in other parts of the business and avoid fraud and risk and trust and safety, a lot of the other company stakeholders mm-hmm. are going to naturally follow suit because they're following the direction, the North Star of the company. So if the leadership kind of turns the other way and wants to focus on high growth, high revenue, growth by any means, then the company will as as well. Yeah, and I'm sure you see that a lot. Absolutely. I mean, naturally, people see fraud and building trust uh, of the bad side of running a business. So naturally, people 
want to overlook the bad things and really focus on the fun, happy, <laughs> great experiences. But it's like, don't be negative, you know. You know why do you want you to think about fraud? It's like, what a downer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I've always, uh, not always, I try to avoid this through just ongoing education. Mm-hmm. So I don't just show up and say, oh, here's Brian with bad news. I don't, <laughs> don't want to be that. You want to be his Brian with the tortilla chips, don't you? Exactly. I mean, maybe that's my in to like, they say the sandwich method, something good, then the bad news and something good. So maybe it's the chips, then the fraud and abuse issues on platform. And then I got to figure out a follow-up, whatever that follow-up may be. Perfect. And what's the last one, Brian? The last one is only focusing on one part of the customer experience. So what I've seen... And it, it goes, it kind of comes down from everything we've talked about already. Uh, and this is almost a byproduct of everything, but this has some of the biggest impact to the actual customer. And a lot of those decisions of how we staff a team, what tools they have, how they're supported by leadership, how they're supported by stakeholders it puts trust and safety teams sometimes in this really tough situation. So all they really have is to focus on one of those pillars of the customer experience. So think content moderation, onboarding, payments, withdrawals, logins. They're forced to choose between one of those. So they they might focus really heavy on content moderation or really heavy on payments or really heavy on account opening, but then everything else doesn't get the support, love, because the team doesn't have the right tools, doesn't have adequate support, and is fighting for a roadmap consistently needing to prove themselves. I don't know how many times I built a business case and a business case about that business case and a business case about that business case. That's a lot of time being burnt, Mm -hmm. not only for myself putting these together, but the people that have to listen to those. Um, So you can see why that would happen i mean presumably for maybe a a smaller marketplace uh or a newer marketplace just not really understanding where the focus should be and and obviously as you say having this this sort of lack of resources and 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 maybe the all these other things maybe the the lack of leadership support etc that they would kind of throw everything into one area and and is that quite hard for you to then get them to pull back from that because you could imagine it's a bit you know they, they're kind of doing one thing and, and they need to be persuaded to maybe sort of spread the focus a bit across um, a whole range of areas that is that quite tricky it is uh, because some of those are a little bit easier to tie to dollar and impact and to people who don't necessarily always understand the ins and out of building trust and safety teams or the different types of abuse that can happen on platforms, by default, it goes to, okay, what's the impact? What's it costing us? Some of those pillars are a little bit easier to tie dollars to. It's a lot easier to tie payment abuse than content moderation abuse. What's it really costing us? Um, And when you don't necessarily have the support of a data team and depending on where teams are born from, like for me, I'm non-technical. I've taught myself to reverse engineer queries people have uh, shared with me, but by no means am I a data scientist. So that puts me at a disadvantage of even proving my case. So Mm -hmm. um, it it definitely can be a challenge when 
costs aren't always tied to it. Yeah. And do you just mentioned data. Uh, sorry that I pronounced that in such a British way. And I'm, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> I, just, I like it better than mine. <laughs> no, it's just I'm different. Um, data, you talk about that and that that's number one, lack of data. Mm-hmm. What can marketplaces do about this and how do they know what data is important? It always kind of depends on what you actually have access to. Um, when I'm working with teams, one of the data sources that a lot of fraud and trust and safety teams don't think about using, but they or the company already has access to, is marketing data. Um, it gives the idea of where the attribution, where risk is coming from, the different channels, what's working, what's not working. It gives at least an insight and a, a leading factor of what what is coming in from where. And it just is a different way to help segment larger populations of data instead of looking at all payments or all account openings or all logins. Um, you have access to data ready right there. Yes, there are plenty of tools out there. Yes, there are tools that are focused on account opening or device fingerprinting and can give a little bit more in-detailed data. But you need to have a better understanding of what risk actually looks like on your platform today, what a legitimate user looks like on your platform today, and then what falls in between and why does it fall in between. So getting a little bit more clarity of if I had this data point, would that help me create a better narrative and put this gray area user in a more than likely abusive user or more than likely legitimate user? So it's really kind of starting with what you have today and how you're able to understand the different buckets of risk. And I usually just start very simply with three buckets of risk. Trust, we approve them. Don't trust them at all reject, and then everything in between. We want to learn more about them so we can better determine what bucket they really belong in. Uh, And that's usually step one of building out a investigation team. You want your investigation team to really focus on that tricky gray area. And ultimately, you get better data and better feedback and better responses. So you can make that gray area smaller and smaller and smaller. The other one I'm going to ask you a bit more about is the lack of consistency. That's really interesting. What is usually going on behind the scenes that causes that? And is that frustrating? And and how do you deal with it? I think it leads leads to when you're managing teams and you're working with when you uh, step up and you learn lead, turn into a little bit more of a leader and you are now working with a team. So you're not a team of one on one you see a little bit more of a disconnect in how that lack of consistency actually feeds into the greater goals. So when you're a team of one-to-one, you have you have a seat at the table or conversations with people to get better insight of why a business is making decisions and why we might be doing one thing today and we need to change things tomorrow. When you're an investigator and you're separated by that much more, you feel like what I was doing yesterday is now a waste of time. So it really affects the morale of the people doing the investigations. It really impacts their mental well-being and can ultimately, when it's so inconsistent and you're redirecting them, they feel that 
they're not doing their job well because everything keeps changing. Is it because of them? I'm generalizing that a little bit. Not everyone feels like that, but through a lot of conversations, it it is fairly common. And then ultimately, that lack of consistency turns into burnout. They feel like they always need to prove themselves. Me as a leader always needs to uh, always feel like I need to share the value of what the team is, like trust and safety 101, who's on my team, all this education to the same people consistently is exhausting. Yeah. Now, Brian, this is so interesting. And and these 10, uh, these 10 things, um, uh, uh, you know, there's so much more to go into with many of them. I know that we are out of time. I know that people listening might want to hear a bit more. Where can they get in touch with you and, um, and find out a bit more about what you're talking about today? LinkedIn is the best place to get a hold of me. Uh, I am the bearded brand protector, bald fraud fighter, and tortilla chip addict. Uh, It's a tagline that might stand out as a little bit more unique than some people. I have an orange background. I'm pretty easy to find. Brian Davis. Um, From there, I can learn a little bit more about Dodgeball itself, of how it actually makes the trust and safety community's lives easier. Uh, And then just kind of learn about the basics. I like to educate others and elevate really the people and the profession of trust and safety as a whole. Brilliant. That's been such a pleasure talking to you. This is so interesting. And I I would really like to go back and ask you more about several other of these points, but we are out of time. Maybe we can do a part two sometime, but it's um, lovely to meet you, Brian, and welcome to the Marketplace Risk Advisory Board. And we look forward to welcoming you to other virtual and in-person events um, as the year progresses. I can't wait. It's great work that uh, Marketplace Risk is doing, and I'm looking forward to be a part of it. Thank you for tuning into the Platform Podcast. Be sure to check us out at MarketplaceRisk.com for information and resources to help startups launch, grow, and succeed. And follow us on social media at Marketplace Risk to stay up to date on all of our conferences, summits, virtual events, and more.